That's a great message. You ever thought of God's love being wild and free? Compared to the love we see here, His love is wild and free within His holiness. And that's wonderful. Well, we're in Luke. <laughs> and this will be our fifth Sunday, actually, on the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. And next week we're going to uh, cover more about the burial and, uh, and, the res and the actual resurrection from the grave. So before we begin this morning, let's pray. Lord, you are wonderful and beautiful. You are amazing, and your love is wild and free. Um, God, it has to be a wild kind of love that you would send your son to die for folks like us. And it's just, uh, it just makes no sense when it comes to logic, but it makes perfect sense within your holy scriptures. So, Lord, this is where we want to land today, within your scriptures, that um, we, we may learn and be encouraged and be awed by you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, for a few moments this morning, we're going to talk about legacies. And we all leave a legacy. Some legacies are larger than others and better known. Abraham Lincoln has an epic legacy, which has inspired thousands, if not millions of people over the course of time. For me, my mother and father left legacies, as well as one particular senior pastor. His name is Robert Ginn. And when we were going to Trinity Baptist in Marion, Ohio, he was an excellent, excellent teacher. He was a man of integrity and honor. And that's, that's a legacy that, I, that he left to a lot of people. But uh, we, we recognize this. Legacies are powerful. And legacies are not established overnight. Legacies are the end product of thousands of decisions made over the course of many years under many different circumstances. So I have a question. Can you name a person whose legacy has influenced your life? And some may have to think for a little while and others, certain names will pop to their mind just like that. So have you had someone that had a legacy that has helped you build your life of honor? <clears throat> Second question might be, what legacy do you want to leave others? This morning I would like to draw your attention to three legacies that are monumental in their scope, but perhaps overlooked. At the time these legacies were being written, I am quite sure that the participants were clueless to the significance of the roles they were playing. So let's begin this morning by reading our scripture from last week to provide some context. Luke 23, verse 44. This is on your scripture sheet or on your bulletin, if you brought that up on your uh, electronic device or printed it. Luke 23, verse 44 says this, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. <clears throat> and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And this is where we left the story last Sunday. So I'd like for us to read a few more verses in that same passage. Luke 23, beginning with verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. <clears throat> and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation or of sacrifice and the Sabbath was beginning. So within these six verses, we find three legacies represented. Two of these legacies are easily identified, while the third legacy is implied within these verses. Actually, it is because of the implied legacy that the other two legacies are even noticed. One of my favorite paintings is in uh, the Chicago Museum of Art. Um, I, you know, when you go to Chicago and you go through this museum, you're just astounded by the masterpieces that are there. And they're so taken for granted, you know, in Chicago. And we go there and whenever we can, we go through that museum. And there's this one masterpiece that I'm just spellbound by. And I look at it every time I go there. And um, it's one of Vincent Van Gogh's self-portraits. Now, oil impressionist. The painting itself is not very large. And when you first approach it, it really appears to be comprised of muted colors. When you stand back, it's, it's, it's just dark and shadowy and muted. However, the closer you get, the brighter it becomes. The technique he used was to begin with a very dark canvas and then add very bright colors with one brush stroke at a time, but each brush stroke had two different colors on, on either side of that brush. So each brush stroke had these bright colors. It is a beautiful use of color and a unique application of each stroke. So here's my point. Without the dark background, the genius of his application of the bright strokes would have been lost. And the same is true with our message today. We're going to begin with a dark canvas. We're first going to look at the legacy of pride, a dark canvas. Now, we have learned a lot about the fair. target of many of Christ's most pointed lectures and rebukes. And at times, 
He permitted them to babble and bluster and even rebuke him. And then there were other times when he stunned, silenced, and set them in their place. So I want to read a few verses for you this morning for examples. Luke 20, verse 46 and 47, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Very strong. Another example. John 9, <clears throat> 1, 41. Uh, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, this scripture is going to expose the pride of the Pharisees in a, in a very stark way. It's a little bit lengthy, but uh, I think you'll enjoy it. John 9.1 says this, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So you see the assumption there. By the way, that assumption is still alive and well in some houses of worship. Your, sin is a, uh, your, your, uh, your illness is a result of sin. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What a privilege, right? God has chosen this man to be blind from birth so that at an appointed time God can use this man through the ministry of his Son to glorify God. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, this is Jesus speaking, night is coming when no one This is a pretty joyful thing. This is an amazing thing. Look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So this man who has been healed from blindness from birth, which by the way was a very unusual thing. Uh, a lot of folks went blind after birth, and those, for some reason, were perceived to be able to be healed or to receive medication. But someone's born blind, it was, very, it was almost unheard of for them to be healed. So this man is healed by Jesus, and he's told to go wash in that spring and come back. So he's thinking, this is an amazing thing. And the neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, well, yeah, it is him. And the other said, no, it just looks like him. But the man kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes?
But this guy is saying, I'm seeing for the first time. I'm absolutely overwhelmed. And you're asking me these questions, but I am the guy. Well, where is he? I don't know. Now the, now the Pharisees get involved, and it goes downhill from here pretty quickly. Verse 13. That's your first clue. That's your first clue. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now we're at a different level. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And this man said to them, he put mud on. Now you can imagine this fellow who has been blind since birth suddenly receiving his sight and just rejoicing. I think this guy is in a great mood. His heart's lifted. His world has just been expanded 100%. Now the Jews did not believe, verse 18, the Jews did not believe to try to disprove what's happening here. They, so he called, they call his parents in and asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered. They are in fear of their leaders. By the way, you should never be in fear of your church leaders, ever, ever, but it's common. But how, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And it says right here in the scriptures, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews. out of my church. I get it. Don't fear. Verse 23, therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Not sure how I feel about those parents, but I understand it. Verse 24, so for the second Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, th this is this man speaking. Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, 
Now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? <laughs> By the way, this is a, this is a great testimony. Um, you know, someone says, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? What, what drives your faith? It doesn't make any sense. So tell me. And this is a great testimony. You know, I can't explain Jesus, but what I do know is this. Before I was saved, I was lost. And now I've been found. And that's all I need to know. This is my testimony. Before... I received Christ, I was lost, and now I'm found. So they keep hounding this guy. He says, whether, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them. This is, this is really rich. I have told you already, and you would not listen. So why do you want to hear it again? And a thought occurs to him. Oh, do you also want to become one of his disciples? That's brilliant. Well, that did not go over well, as you will see here in verse 28. And they reviled him. They mocked him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. That's, that's their mantra. That's their identity. That's their claim to power. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Our healed friend responds like this in verse 30. The healed man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, because that's what they said. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to them. Never since the world began, this is still our healed friend, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? See, there's the pride. Right on the surface. They've been humiliated. They've been trapped. And this is their response. You were born scum. And now you think you can teach us. And this was their action. They cast him out. Now, guess who hears about this? Jesus. <laughs> Verse 35 says this, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Jesus said, for, I'm sorry, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. So did this healing of this man result in his salvation at the time of the healing? In other words, did he have to have faith before he was healed? That's what some would tell you. We don't have enough faith or you would be healed. This man had no faith, and he was healed. But it was a result of the healing that brought him to Jesus 
He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see me, that those who do not see may see, that means converts to Jesus, and those who see, meaning the religious elites, may become blind. He says, Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind then, Jesus, carpenter's son? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, meaning having the faith of a child, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, in other words, now that you're claiming that authority, your guilt remains. And by the way, when the leaders got all high and mighty about elites following Moses and sitting on the seat of Moses, Jesus let them have it in Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe um, whatever they tell you. In other words, do what they tell you to do, submit to the authority, but not the works they do. I get this next part. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries. By the way, the phylacteries was a box that they put around their neck that they put certain things in, uh, scriptures or whatever that may be. I'm not sure about that whole thing. But they make phylacteries that are huge, so they'll be noticed, and... Um, and fringes, long fringes, which was another sign of authority and power. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Here's another blistering accusation from Jesus. Matthew 23, 15 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him, get this, twice as much a child of hell as you are. This is the legacy the religious elites left for their children and their children's children, and on and on it goes. It was a legacy of arrogance, narcissism, elitism, murder, bearing false witness, anger, rage, hatred, hypocrisy, and blasphemy. And at the very core of all of this is pride. This is what the spiritual elites left as a legacy, a legacy of pride. We're going to move on to the second legacy, and this is the legacy of courage. Legacy of pride, which is a dark canvas, Legacy of courage, brush strokes of color. Luke 23:50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked. Microphone might have died, so I'm just on that now. Okay. So you might want to pick up back that loop there. 
We're going to repeat some of this. I think we had some difficulties. Luke 23, 50 says this. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid before. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. Now the other three Gospels add their details, specifically Matthew and Mark. So we're going to combine these so we get hopefully a good overall picture. Matthew 27 says about Joseph in verse 57, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Mark 16.43 adds this, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, which means the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he was on a spiritual quest, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And this is what we know about Joseph. He was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, who was highly respected. He was on a spiritual quest and encountered Jesus and his life was changed. He also disagreed with the Sanhedrin's plan concerning Jesus. John 19.38 says this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, after going to Pilate and requesting the body, came and took away his body. Matthew 27, 59. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Enter a man by the name of Nicodemus. John 19, 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So who is Nicodemus? We have a little bit of insight into Joseph of Arimathea. Who is Nicodemus? Well, you can read this entire chapter on your own. I'm just going to give you a few verses out of John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now there's that phrase that just sends people into a tizzy born again. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now we're going to leave the story there. You can read the rest of that on your own. This is who Nicodemus is. He met Jesus earlier. Back to our story. John verse 19, 41. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, this is a, a really interesting story to me. Let's summarize what has happened in our study so far this morning. Jesus of Nazareth, 
God the Son spends three, day, three years of his life pouring into 12 disciples. One of them betrays him, and the rest of his disciples, for the most part, scatter upon his arrest. Jesus endures about 20 hours of trials and torture and then makes his way to the cross. And during the final three hours of his slow and agonizing death, God unleashes his wrath upon Jesus. Because Jesus had become the sin of those who would receive him. Jesus dies upon the cross and two of the most unlikely ambassadors for God step forward. And they humbly ask permission to bury Jesus before nightfall so that his body would not be left on the cross until the Passover. Now one man is a Pharisee, soon to be an ex-Pharisee, and the other could have been a Pharisee, but he was a well-respected member of the Sanhedrin, and he will resign as well. So here's what we have. Two Jewish officers of the Sanhedrin are chosen by God the Father to remove his broken son from the cross. They cleaned the body, and they wrapped it in a shroud with myrrh and aloes. Ironically, it would be two soon-to-be former religious elites that would be able to confirm beyond doubt the death of, Nazareth, of Jesus of Nazareth. Messiah was dead. So we have a legacy of pride, a dark canvas. We have a legacy of courage, brushstrokes of color. Our final legacy is a legacy of loyalty, more brushstrokes of color. So loyalty is in short supply today. So we might ask, why is loyalty in short supply? Well, actually part of the reason is that we live within a culture that has grown accustomed to a consumer lifestyle. And we see this, especially during this, um, whatever this is we're having, pandemic, I guess. This is what we see. We were told to huddle in our homes, and we have done that, but life has to go on. So we found ways of still getting what we need without touching anybody and without any kind of relationships. Uh, it's best represented by online uh, purchasing. And so we are people that are isolated and we order products we have not seen from people we do not know. Now the way that benefits them is that's exactly who they're created to be. Online shopping, some of you might be saying, why are you ranting? I'm not. This, this will come together, I pray. <laughs> the reason that works is because online companies don't want your loyalty. They want your money. And if they can get a sliver of what you need and ship it to you with very little cost, their whole thing is to get a not very much of a whole lot of people. The hope of these companies is to acquire just that sliver. And this mentality spills into more meaningful areas of our life, long before online shopping. And I won't go into that rant because I, most of you already know it, but according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the median number of years that wage and salary workers have worked for their current employer is 4.6 years. 
Loyalty is becoming an obsolete concept. If you are an employer and you know your employees generally are going to leave before the five-year period, how much are you going to invest in them? And if you are an employee that knows you're going to get fired within five years, how much are you going to invest in the company? It's not. Then it becomes, I need to work here because I need this amount of money to sustain the lifestyle I have. And that's where we are. By the way, that spills over into the church. In a huge way, it spills over into the church. We take a quick look at the legacy of loyalty. Luke 23, 52 says this, This man went to Pilate, meaning Joseph of Arimathea, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the, sat and the Sabbath was beginning. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Matthew 27, 61, uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Mark 16, 1 and 2, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome bought uh, spices, not the mother of Jesus and Salome, it's the mother of Jesus, and then this person named Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Finally, John 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The word that rings in my ears when reading these scriptures is dignity. They were preparing for the mourning period as well as the physical preparation of the body. As a little aside, we all realize that our flesh is the shell that houses our spirit. We know that. Talked a little bit about that last week or the week before. I can't remember which. There's just a, 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 such an evident difference in the body when the spirit leaves. However, I do not believe that we are to treat the dead with disrespect. When God created Adam, he created him in his own image. That image became manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And guess who he looked like? You and me. I think we have to be careful as believers that we don't become cavalier with the thought of, that's really not me, and so whatever. But I used to say that, you know, throw me in a ditch someplace. <laughs> Wait till I die, if that's okay. <laughs> throw me in a ditch someplace. But I'm not sure that's the right way of thinking about that anymore. And that's why, that's why it's so important that when people lose a loved one, that you go. It may be inconvenient, may not know them very well, maybe you didn't even know their loved one, but you go. It's showing respect. And, and I think these ladies were concerned with the dignity of the body of Jesus Christ. While walking with Jesus, these ladies probably took more of a subservient, although important role, the many would be happy with today. He was always tender toward them and treated them with respect. Now, if you remember, it's only the ladies that are at the tomb. The apostles are huddled in an upper room trying to digest everything that had happened. And uh, 
their own lives were being disrupted because leaders were emerging from within that 11 at the time. They were dealing with what we would say, the man stuff. I'm not sure that's right. That's how we would look at it. However, the ladies immediately began to gather what was needed for the preservation of the corpse of Jesus. Someone in that fellowship of ladies pulled things together very quickly. And I think her name may have been Martha. Maybe. Okay, I'm saying someone like Martha. You know, the one that always gets hammered <laughs> for doing too much. It took a Martha. And he, she pulled these people together. And when I think of these ladies at that moment, I have a mental picture of quiet acceptance, resolve, and appropriate grieving. Not only were these ladies loyal to Christ, they were active in expressing their loyalty through their obedience to the law. Again, obedience comes back. They prepared the spices and then they observed the Sabbath. So here's our application as we close today. Obedience is perhaps the most important part of expressing our loyalty to God. Loyalty is a necessity in any serious relationship, whether it be friends, family, or marriage. Loyalty transcends seasons of life, distance, age, and emotions. Jesus, of course, is the greatest example of true loyalty to the point of suffering for our sins and a humiliating death upon a cross and receiving the wrath of his Father. Jesus expressed his loyalty to us by obeying his Father and sacrificing himself for our salvation. There is an old saying, I may not be asked to die for Christ, but I have been given the privilege of living for him. My guess is this, if we're not very good at living for him, we probably wouldn't be very good at dying for him. What legacy are you building? Will your legacy consist of only the dark canvas of pride? Or will it include the bright brushstrokes of courage and loyalty? Every life begins as a dark canvas because we are born into sin. No matter how old you may be, it is never too soon or too late to introduce vibrant colors to your canvas. Some of you who may be listening or have loved ones who are listening that are younger, you may think this is kind of a sermon for older people. Uh, maybe, but here's the thing. Some of my legacy was established when I was 13 years old. It, it really was. And I had nothing to do with Jesus at that time. People remember me differently. But it doesn't end there. As believers, we are compelled through the power of the Holy Spirit to express our loyalty to Jesus through a life of obedience. Not to maintain or to receive salvation, but out of our love for Him. May I invite you to receive Jesus now. The greatest legacy you can leave is a life that is changed by being saved by Jesus Christ. If you want to leave a legacy 
that will absolutely positively affect the lives of your children. Receive Christ. How do you do that? Well, the way you do that is very simply, you just acknowledge that you are not perfect. You acknowledge that you have not yet received the Lord Jesus Christ. You acknowledge that maybe you've thought a lot about Him, but you haven't done anything about it. And here's how you know you need Him. Because if you're thinking those ways right now, you're not saved. A saved person does not think that way. So here's how you receive Christ. It's a very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God, just like you said. I believe the Bible is true, every word of it, and I believe it's for me. And if the Bible is telling me that I need to receive you to receive salvation, then I am receiving you to receive salvation. Enter into me now. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Now, it's a free decision because Christ has already paid the price. But I have to tell you, if you're asking what it's going to cost you to receive Christ, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. He is not content to be second on your list. But it's so worth it.